Hi, everyone, and welcome to Monday Morning 8 a.m., a podcast from Firms Consulting that goes out every Monday morning 8 a.m., where we distill the insights from the noise. We make this available for our Firms Consulting Insider members, but we also make it available to the broader audience so that everyone can benefit from the insights and stories that we share with the world. If you would like to get previous episodes of this podcast in a print format, which is something most people have asked for, you can go to amazon.com and search for Strategy Insights. If you would like to listen to the podcast version of this, go to any podcast app and type in Strategy Skills and Monday morning 8 a.m. will be one of the episodes in the Strategy Skills podcast channel. If you would like to get future episodes of this podcast in newsletter format, go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash promo and put in your email address and you'll be automatically put into the mailing list for Monday morning 8 a.m. So it's going to be a very, very exciting, action-packed episode. But before we begin, we have a little gift for Firms Consulting Slides members. If you log into your portal today, you will find every single slide from the Corporate Strategy and Transformation Program has been loaded to the portal. One of our biggest and most popular programs is now available for you with all the editable slides to be used to move the world and make an impact and move markets. As we get into the episode, remember to always think about how you are using the insights, the thinking strategies to make a difference in the world. We'll wrap up at the end by showing you how some clients are using the insights. What are the techniques they are using? So let's get straight into things. The first big theme is one we will call AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, and the unspoken truth about strategy. Now, as you may know, the United States has auctioned off many licenses for wireless spectrum to be able to use the 5G standard. What this means is that the United States is preparing to roll out 5G. Buying licenses that allow telecoms companies to compete in 5G is a prerequisite. It's almost as if they're buying a distribution channel so they can move data. It's a costly endeavor. Billions and billions and billions of dollars are spent on this. Now, what I'm going to talk about is one of the messy, unspoken and purely ugly truths about strategy. And that is no one really knows what good strategy looks like. It's almost impossible to know what a good strategy looks like as distinguished from a bad strategy. Three big, powerful companies, T-Mobile, Verizon, AT&T. Now, here's the interesting thing about this. Clearly, some of these companies are going to succeed and some are going to fail. Not everyone can be number one in the space. So one is going to be number one. One is going to be number two. One is going to be number three, but it's not as if being number three is something to be proud about. You are going to be destroying shareholder value. It's not like you get a bronze medal and you get your photograph taken as a CEO. No, you get punished. You get activist shareholders buying stock and trying to push for dramatic changes in your strategy. The question becomes, if you look at the board of each company and the management team, these are very accomplished individuals. Everyone is looking at the same data. The data that they have is almost always the same. Everyone understands the other's cost structure. Everyone understands the other's competencies, weaknesses, assets. So how is it that they can come up with different and divergent strategies that lead to different outcomes? Why is it that strategy is such a messy process 
that you don't even know what good looks like. There's no objective way of knowing what good looks like. Strategy is about deploying capital and making sure that capital gives you a return. If you've been following what's happening with AT&T and so on, you know that T-Mobile has caused a massive shift in the industry because they've found a way to grow off a low-cost base. For a long time, they were the sort of also-rans in the industry, but now they're growing at a tremendous rate. They have what in strategy terms is called raving fans. I mean, if you've been to T-Mobile's store or shop where they sell their stuff, you know they have a different energy and a different vibe. It's like those people think they are taking over the world and they're going to make a big impact on the coolest people in the world. If you go to a Verizon store and you go to an AT&T store, you feel like this is the corporate world. Like these guys serve the corporate world. They button down and that's the space they want to play in. So how come three brilliant teams, outstanding people, how is it that they come up with different strategies? when they see the same things, when they've been in the industry so long, when they know all of the CEOs, all of the senior managers, they've studied other companies around the world. How is it that one is able to create raving fans that love the product and the others are simply doing the same thing? In the end, the customer always wins. So why is it one group of companies doesn't know they don't have raving fans? And the picture gets muddied and worse. Because to buy 5G spectrum costs billions of dollars. Just having it doesn't mean you can flip a switch and start generating money from 5G. No, you've got to now invest the infrastructure behind it. You've then got to work with mobile companies to make sure they bring the phones that can use your mobile infrastructure. And we've seen this precedent play out before in Europe when telecoms companies overpaid for, in that case, it was you know the previous level of licenses 4G and 3G, and they did not have enough money to invest in the spectrum by building the infrastructure out around it. As you look at companies, and this is a great example because a race has started off whereby everyone's trying to build 5G capability. It's not just a race about whether T-Mobile is going to be better than Verizon, is going to be better than AT&T. No, this is a race about whether AT&T, Verizon and T-Mobile is going to lay the infrastructure that's going to allow the United States as a nation to compete with, well, China is one of them, but they're competing with many other parts of the world. It's not about whether AT&T is going to beat Verizon. It's about whether one of these companies is not just going to be able to make money from 5G, but it's going to allow the United States to be successful in the next phase of economic growth. As you think this thing out, think about this. Why is it no one ever says strategy is a terribly painful process? There's no objective measures. We don't know what good looks like. We don't know what a right strategy is. Of these three teams, one team is going to do very well. The other two teams, what's going to happen to them? Nothing. Nobody ever asked the question, okay, you served company X. Let's assume Verizon is the company that doesn't win in this 5G race. I'm not saying they won't win, but let's assume they, they don't win. Does that strategy team take an objective reflection of why they were not able to come up with the right strategy? Of course, sometimes it's implementation, but it's not always implementation. Sometimes the strategy is wrong. And is the reflection only that we were not able to come up with the right strategy? Or maybe the way strategy is done in the first place, there's a problem with it. It's an expensive field, very nebulous concepts. 
it's almost impossible to know what a good strategy is versus a bad strategy. There's many books about it, but really in the real world, when you're a CEO and you have to make a decision, clearly it's impossible to make because if it was that easy to make, we wouldn't have bad strategies. The next big theme and a very exciting and entertaining theme, and again, linked to AT&T, is the fact that Zack Snyder's Justice League has just hit HBO Max. I'm as excited as anyone to see four hours of this monumental epic. But if you've been following what happened, you know that Justice League was released many years ago. And it was regarded as a failure, a flop in the market. So many people are surprised that HBO Max or Warner Media, the holding company, spent something like $70 million giving Zack Snyder permission to come back and re-edit his movie. And the history is quite interesting because he was brought in to do the, the initial Justice League. As the story was developing, the executives at Warner Media felt that, well, hold on a second, we don't like the direction it's going in, so what we're going to do is we are going to ask another director who worked on the Avengers and Buffy the Vampire Slayer to come in because we like his style of having these very... Um, comical storylines, humor, jokes, which is what Marvel movies are famous for. So think about this for a second. You've spent millions and millions and millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars, building a storyline and a theme and a mood in the Zack Snyder style, which is, if you've watched his movies, they're gritty, they're dark, they're epic, dramatic scenes. He almost paints superheroes as gods. And now, you've spent all that money going in one direction, you're going to bring in another director to try to take it in another direction? How would that work out? Well, it didn't work out very well. The movie received bad reviews. I watched the first Justice League. I didn't think it was that bad. And everyone thought it would disappear. But AT&T, Media, HBO Max, they decided they're going to spend $70 million, bring Zack Snyder back, and tell him, you know what? We want you to do this movie the way you wanted to do this movie. And of course, the criticism in the media has been quite extensive because what they're saying is, look, it was a terrible movie. Um, why, do you want to, why do you want to do anything? Just, just let it die a peaceful death and, and forget about it. But here's the thing. Let's think about the strategic. There are many insights here. On the one hand, I'm not going to name any companies here. On the one hand, you have other superhero movies, which are very good. I watch them as well. I watch all of them. But they're different. But those superhero movies are made because they are being profitable. They're multi-billion dollar franchises, some of them. So as a fan of those movies, I know this company is making these movies because they're nice, but they make money. But here comes Warner Media. This movie, people say it's not going to make money, but they're going to plunk down $70 million to please fans who started a campaign to get Zack Snyder to come back and finish his movie, but to finish a movie that everyone says is not going to be profitable. How do you think I feel as a fan when I know a company is doing something for me, spending $70 million but they are not expected to make money on it. But they're just doing it because I asked for it. This may be one of the most brilliant strategies of all time to create raving fans. And here's the thing you have to understand. There are many deep layered insights here. First, if you have a child and this child's an epic embarrassment, you take her out, she puts her finger in her nose. She does all kinds of silly, ridiculous things. Do you lock your child in a dungeon for the rest of her life? Well, you know, if you read the press today, some people do that, and that's wrong. But the point is, of course, you've got to develop your child, coach her, mentor her, love her. She's a child. 
but she's also an asset. It's not a very good way to think about your children, but maybe it is the best way to think about your children. But as an asset, you have to develop that asset. The Justice League, Wonder Woman, Batman, Superman, back from the dead, The Flash, Aquaman, they're assets. One media has to keep trying to develop those assets. It has no choice. The asset is valuable. They just have not figured out the best way to make the world love those assets. And the operative word is the world, and I'll come back to this in a second. They have to keep taking shots. They can't say, okay, we failed at the Justice League. Um, let's bury this for five years or 10 years, and we'll try again in 10 years. No. They have to keep trying, keep trying, keep trying until they get it right. They have to manage this asset, nurture this asset, and fix this asset. But there's another more deeper insight here. Clearly, Marvel movies are different from Zack Snyder or the DC model, which is Batman was serious, Superman was serious, everyone's serious in the DC universe. And they are mocked for that. But that's what makes them different. And they need to play to that strength because strategy is about being different. Yes, people are going to mock them, but there are people who mock Marvel movies as well. Here's the other insight. If I don't know what the Rotten Tomatoes score is for the first Justice League, but let's assume it was 50%. Let's assume 50% of people did not like that movie, but 50% clearly love that movie. Now, 50% of the total number of the audience that watches this movie is still a big number. Now, what should Warner Media do? Should they say, oh, you know what? 50% of the world who watched this movie didn't like this movie. And there mostly and there probably were a lot of Marvel people in there. People who like Marvel movies looked at this and said, "Oh, I don't like it. It's not exactly serious. It's not exactly humorous like a Marvel movie. So, I don't want to watch it." Fair enough. So they weren't able to convince many of those people to like this hybrid version. But clearly 50% of people love this movie. But they could have loved it more if it had picked a direction and stuck with it. Now what Warner Media is doing is they're saying, okay, we're going back to what we're good at. And yes, we're going to upset a lot of people. Many people are not going to like this movie, but the people that we have chosen to serve, they're going to love this movie. And now look at the trade-off here, right? Do nothing and appease the people who don't like the movie and may never like the movie. Or do something and serve those crazy lunatic fans who like these dark gritty movies and will always know that Warner Media and some executive in Texas spent 70 million dollars greenlighting a movie that nobody said should be made just to please a bunch of fans. It's a four-hour epic. I mean I've got to cancel meetings to watch this movie which I probably will be doing at some point. They have made a very good movie yeah? because as long as they keep a core group of raving fans and they please them there's a chance they can expand that group of raving fans but if you don't please that core group of raving fans there's no chance you can ever expand that because you killed the core I mean, think of apple right when apple started off it was up against microsoft the dominant behemoth of the computing world but apple kept a core group of fans super excited until it found a way to expand that core. And of course, AT&T is involved in an epic streaming war with Disney and Netflix, and they keep on dropping powerful, amazing content onto their platform. Now, maybe they'll, they'll struggle. Maybe they'll get it wrong, but you can't get it wrong repeatedly if you keep trying. At some point, they're gonna get it right. So they get you know, criticized in the media a lot. I can imagine the CEO of AT&T, the share price is not doing well. 
You spend a lot on 5G spectrum. You're spending a lot on streaming. You know, what's the plan? But unless you keep trying, you, you don't have a plan. So they should keep trying. Find that core group of fans. Lean into them. Not be apologetic. And give the world some gritty superhero movies. That's what the world needs. Not everyone wants to watch comedy in superhero movies. You've got to understand who your market is. You've got to play to your market. But if you don't play to your market, and you try to please a market that doesn't like what you're doing and may never like what you're doing, that's a problem. Again, it's about strategy. It's about deciding where you want to play. And again, we're sticking to that theme because we've just made a big strategy update to slides. The next big theme I want to talk about is Las Vegas and the ugly truth about diversification. Now, I used to live in Las Vegas, and I love the city of Las Vegas. It's wonderful, beautiful. It's, it's, it's an amazing city. A lot is happening. It's one of the few places in the world you can go to at 6 a.m. in the morning and find the most amazing restaurants open. Now, Vegas is a boom and bust town. It does amazingly well when the world is happy and wants to travel and spend money, and it does terribly when the world is not happy, cannot travel, and does not want to spend money. I was in Vegas just before the financial crisis of 2007, running all the way into 2008 and 9, And I was there at the um, launch of uh, some major brand. And everyone was so excited and telling me about how Celine Dion had just bought a house in Vegas. I don't know if it's true. Real estate agents tell you anything to sell property. And then the financial crisis came and everything collapsed. Vegas said they would diversify. Now, they said they would diversify. Whether they actually meant it is another thing. They didn't really diversify much. Or at least the fruits of that diversification has not come through because during the COVID-19 lockdown, Vegas suffered, I think, more than just about any other major city in the United States because it's purely a tourism-run city. Now, what I want to talk about here is some of the misunderstandings about diversification. Because when I was a senior partner and I talked to executives around the world, they would always tell me they, have, they want to diversify. They don't want to be the CEO that is not diversified. Now, when you talk about diversification, diversification is not what people think it means. It's not about entering a new market. It's not about entering a new product. No, that's not diversification. That's entering a new market. Diversification is about financial diversification. What that means is that when the returns from one division is going up, the returns from another division is going down. You're hedging. That means that at no time do all of your revenue, earnings, profits, whatever the metric you use, collapse at the same time. And shareholders want this. Executives want this. But they do it incorrectly. And here's the deep insight. There are two ways to diversify. One is you hold one class of assets that go up when another class of assets go down. That's what most companies do. They look for hedged assets. But what's the ugly truth about this? The ugly truth about this is in, in a well-diversified portfolio, you're always going to have one class of assets performing miserably. Can you imagine if you're the CEO of a company and you're standing up and saying, you know what, guys? Uh, we did a very brilliant and amazing thing here. We have a diversified portfolio. That means that we are never, ever going to go through boom and bust cycles. True enough, but it also means that at any given time, you're investing half of your capital in businesses that don't earn anything, or at least not enough. Nobody wants to be that CEO, and that's the ugly truth about diversification. It's done incorrectly. Any CEO that tries to truly diversify is basically saying that, well, we are deliberately putting our capital into things that are not going to make money. So how do you truly diversify? There's another way to diversify. Going back to the example of one group of assets or division earnings going up and the other one going down, there's another way to do it. What if 
when one division's assets went up or down, the diversification play you have, the division you invested in has what is known as stable or static returns. That's a diversification as well. When one goes up, the other one is not moving in the same direction. It's moving steadily because you are not diversified if all your earnings move together in the same direction. So what people do is they find earnings that move in opposite directions, but then you're damaging half, you're destroying half your capital. But what if your earnings in your other class of investments are just static, they just go in one direction. Now, if you follow all the programs we have on Firms Consulting, you know that I talk a lot about how I built my career as a corporate strategy partner, not on understanding the revenue side, but understanding the risk side of, of strategy. This is the big insight I had. And I did a lot of this work with utilities. This was before, this was when climate change was still a big issue, but before people figured out how to do it well. So you'd go to power utilities around the emerging markets and the Western world as well, and they would be producing a lot of coal-fired emissions because coal is, was, it will be for a long time, a major source of fuel. And I talk to these power utilities and they'd always tell me the same thing, right? You know, Michael, tell me about the latest developments in utility strategy and lease cost planning, because that's how utilities work. They want to know which source of fuel is going to produce the least cost, because obviously they would want to burn whatever fuel it is that is cheapest, that's least cost planning. And if something was least cost, it doesn't matter who they were upsetting, it doesn't matter how many environmentalists don't want to be their friends on Facebook, they are going to build that power station. So what I started thinking about is what is the risk they're introducing to their balance sheets? And one of the deep insights I had is that everyone's thinking about renewables incorrectly. The entire case for renewables being made at that time and being made very badly, by the way, is that you need to invest in renewables because it's the right thing to do. You're going to save a polar bear. I've actually seen presentations with a polar bear on the cover or somewhere. There was a first big theme. The second big theme was, well, in time, renewables are going to become so cheap and so cost effective that they're going to be a least cost alternative for you. That's not true. That wasn't true then. It's probably going to be true in the future, but it's even now. It's not there yet, but it's getting close to it. But the insight I came up here with is all utilities are looking at least cost. What if they looked at the risk? And what I showed them is that if you look at the biggest cost a utility incurs once it builds a plant, it's the fuel cost, right? It's gas, it's coal, it's a huge cost. Coal-fired stations, massive. If you've got a diversified utility portfolio of power stations, you can have coal, you can have nuclear, you can have all kinds of fuels in there. What I show them is that most of these fuels move in the same direction in terms of cost. When gas prices go up, coal prices generally go up. That's not an opinion. You can model that and see that. But renewable fuel costs are free, which means it's fixed. It's always going to be free. It's fixed. That means when the price of coal goes up, price of a renewable, because it's fixed and free, it stays exactly the same. When the price of renewables go down, renewables, when the price of coal and carbon-based and other fuels go down, renewables stay fixed. Now, what this means is that the company's cash flow risk, the amount of cash you can lose at any time as swings in the fuel cost change can be minimized if you add more renewables to your grid. So it's not about low, it's not about least cost. It's not about it will be cheaper in the future. It's the fact that 
if prices of commodities swing, and commodities like coal are a feedstock, they feed the power station, if you add renewables to the grid, the swing can be smoothed out because you have renewables in the portfolio where the price doesn't change. That was a big, big insight at the time. And it's a big insight you need to think about. As you diversify, the point is not to get assets that move in the opposite direction and commit half of your capital to value destruction. No, it's about finding asset classes that are stable. They just move in one direction. And of course, you know, the CEOs of those utilities were very, very happy with that thinking because you can think about the implications when you're borrowing money on the capital markets and you can show investors that our cash flow at risk has been cut, whatever the percentage is. It affects credit ratings. It affects share prices. But also there's the goodwill of the world finding utility that's investing in renewables, even though it's not least cost. And people say, wow, you did this even though it doesn't make any sense. But actually it makes a lot of sense because what they're showing is that, well, there's another benefit. And that's diversification, but not in the way people are thinking about it. The next big theme, and unfortunately I have to mention a name of someone, not his name, but he hasn't done anything wrong, but I want to talk about what it means. And that is the non-CEO has just learned that being good is not good enough. Now, if you follow the saga of Danone, Danone has pitched itself or branded itself as the socially responsible consumer packaged goods company, or as they call it outside of the you know, Western Hemisphere, fast-moving consumer goods companies. That's not to say that Danone is more socially responsible than, let's say, um, its other major competitors. No, it's just branded itself. It's taken this flag of social responsibility and draped it around itself and told everyone this is what we're going to do. But Danone has not done very well. Its share price is trailing peers. Its P-E ratio is trailing peers. And activist shareholders have stepped up and said, hold on a second. You're not doing well. We want the CEO to go. He needs to go. And that's basically what happens. The CEO has been released. Now, the question here is this. Was the CEO let go because he pursued a socially responsible corporate agenda or because he pursued it in a suboptimal way? And what does that mean for the world? What does that mean for strategy? Well, as a start, Danone's peers are also pursuing a socially responsible strategy. They may not have branded themselves around it. They may not be as good at branding as Danone, but that's what they are doing. But they are making money and they're making more money at higher margins than the non. So now the question becomes, if the media and the world thinks that the CEO was fired because he's pursuing a socially good agenda, is that the case? And that's most likely not the case. There's two insights here, and they're, they're quite important insights. The first one is that at the beginning of the socially good theme that swept across the world, it was enough to say, I'm pursuing a socially responsible agenda and the world rewarded you for that. But now if everyone is pursuing a socially responsible agenda, you're not going to be rewarded on whether you are just doing it. You're going to be rewarded on whether the agenda is working. And if it's not working, it doesn't mean the agenda is wrong. It means that group of executives leading it just haven't figured out how to make money doing it. And the question becomes, should investors wait for them to figure it out or should investors bring in another CEO to figure it out? And the telling thing is when you speak to these investors, they, they tell you clearly, it's not that we don't like the socially responsible agenda. We don't like the way it's being done. What's the second insight? The second insight is quite interesting. When companies incorrectly pursue a socially responsible agenda, what that means is that, and many companies do this, 
what they do is they don't develop fabulous products and reconfigure their product and supply chains to be socially responsible in a cost-effective way. No, they just say they're being socially responsible, raise their costs, or they do it in such a way that they share price tanks. Now, this is important. If a company becomes socially responsible and its costs go up, but other socially responsible companies in that sector are able to be socially responsible and keep their costs the same or even lower their costs, what is the company that has not figured out its cost equation going to do? Is it going to pass it on to consumers or is it going to eat the costs? If it passes on to consumers, why would a consumer buy from a company that's doing exactly what another company is doing but is charging more for it? If a company eats the cost, that means it doesn't pass it on to consumers, but it lowers its margin, it has less money to invest in innovation. So it's not enough to say you're being socially responsible anymore. You have to figure out how to do it in a way where you can create fabulous products at the right price point because being socially responsible is not good enough anymore. On the other hand, let's assume it built a new supply chain, a new product structure, a new product mix. It got the pricing and everything right. So it's not passing on cost to consumers anymore. No, it's, it's able to be cost-effective, but the products are not great. They're socially responsible, they're cheaper, but they're not great. What's going to happen then? You then pass on a cost to your investors because your share price tanks. So companies caught in the socially responsible maze and they don't know how to do it. it means they're doing it just because it sounds good. They're going to make a decision here. Am I going to pass the cost to the consumer or am I going to pass the cost to the investor? Uh, the easy answer is don't pass your cost to investors because they'll have you replaced. But there's no easy answer. If you pass the cost to consumers, you'll lose consumers. So if you go down the socially responsible route, don't say you're being socially responsible and assume that's the only reason people are going to buy from you. It was good five years ago to do that. Today, as companies figure out how to do good and you know, produce great products, you're competing against those companies. They figure out everything. And just saying you're socially responsible is not going to be good enough. The question is, how are you going to do this? Where are you going to make your big play? How are you going to manage things? Now, as we get into this, I think it's important to realize that um, all of these are big, important strategy themes. At the beginning, I said I want to talk about how you need to use the insights and the training. At Firms Consulting, we always say we train leaders. We have the fortitude, willpower, and determination to move markets. And I want to give you an example of how you need to apply these things. I'm going to talk about an executive coaching client here. And this is an executive coaching client who runs the strategy team at the division of a very large bank. So it's a big division, multi, multi-billion dollar division. He runs a strategy team of about, I think, 15 people. And his job is to figure out whatever the company wants him to figure out. And I like any client I have in the executive coaching program, they always do the same thing when they start with me. They always say, Michael, give me a few weeks. I need to put together an entire pack, explain to you what I'm doing, how I'm doing it, where my priorities are, what the opportunities are. I need to write out 10 page summaries of each person I'm working with. Obviously, they're not sharing confidential information, but I need to tell you this is the relationship I have. This is the problems I have. If I let these people do it, and I mean, these are my clients, I love them, but if I let them do it, they will take six months to put together a briefing pack like I'm the president of the United States and I need to know what's happening somewhere in the world. And they are very surprised when I say I actually don't need that. And they say, what do you mean you don't need that? 
of course you need to know that. You need to know what's happening in my life if you're going to help me. And I say, no, I don't need to know that. The reason for this is simple. Every executive coaching client I deal with, they always think that the reason they are not successful is because there's something wrong with the world in which they're operating. They think, well, there's something not right with this executive. So I'm going to tell Michael what's wrong with him and Michael's going to tell me how to fix it. Or there's something wrong with this strategy I'm putting together. I'm going to tell Michael what the strategy is. I'm going to give him all the data and he's going to tell me. He's going to find what's missing in the strategy. Or there's just something I, you know, that's not working with my team. I've got to tell Michael what each of my team members are doing and Michael's going to fix it. This is one of the insights in this story. The first one is that every executive coaching client I deal with, they have the same fundamental problem. And that is they do not accept reality for what it is. For them, the problem is always something else. Someone else, some product, some analysis. They look at the world and say there's something wrong with the world. And because there's something wrong with the world, I've got to give Michael all of the information, say, tells me what's wrong with the world, and we fix what's wrong with the world. The problem with that is that you make the mistake of not understanding the world is what it is. You can't fix the world. You've got to adjust to work with the world. In layman's terms, that means the problem is the client. And the reason I don't need to know about your executive and your product strategy and so on is because I'm not there to fix those things because really those things don't need to be fixed. It's almost always the executive that's the problem. And when problem, I don't mean that like a problem. I mean the problem lies in the way they view the world, but even more deeper, the fact that they're unwilling to accept the world the way it is. They've been brought up to believe that if they do certain things, whether in MBA schools or training programs, the world changes for them. The world doesn't change for anyone. You have to change yourself to adjust to the world. The biggest, most important thing you can do and the biggest, most important gift I give to coaching clients is that see the world for what it is. Embrace the world for what it is. And if you can do that, you will realize the problem really lies with you. And I'm going to pare this down even more deeper for you. right? So this client is um, head of strategy. And I ask him, you know, why do you think you're not successful? He says, well, I'm not successful because I'm told in performance reviews that I'm not ready to be promoted. I'm not fulfilling my end of the agenda. I'm not doing well. People are not excited to work with me. I'm not doing what I was meant to do. I should have rotated out of the strategy group about a year and a half ago, but I'm, I don't, haven't found a home to go into. And if you know anything about internal strategy groups, you never make that your home. You must rotate out of it at any level. Even the CEO of Citibank today, uh, Jane Fraser, she was in the strategy group. She led it, but it was not a permanent home. So I looked at him and I said, okay, so what do you do? Tell me what your week is like. Now, if you want to know what someone's, who someone is, look at their diary. It doesn't matter what they tell you about what they like and what their priorities are, you look at their diary. So he talked me through his week. He spends about a day and a half of his entire week working on the big agenda item that the strategy team is now pursuing. So just as an insight here, the internal strategy unit of any company in the world is not doing strategy. They're doing whatever the CEO wants them to do. If, for example, the CEO right now, his biggest pain point is, let's take a banking example, getting rid of bad debt on their balance sheet. He's going to ask the strategy team to do that. If the pain point shifts to how do I increase efficiency in the branch networks, he's going to ask the strategy team to do that. But the strategy team never just does strategy. They do whatever is the agenda of the CEO. So this client is spending all his time working on multiple things. So he's 
been asked to find a way for this bank to win in a major Asian market. It's a very competitive market. It's a very important market for the future of banking and wealth management. It's maybe final battle in wealth management for the next 50 years is going to be fought in this market. But not only is his client spending one and a half days on this, he's also helping out executives and other initiatives, which he thinks are important. So he thinks digitization in one of the Asian markets, not the main market, is a major agenda, and he's spending a lot of time working on that. Now, can you see the problem? It should be quite self-evident. This executive has been tasked with a major pain point for the CEO. Find me a way to win in wealth management in this incredibly important market. And what is this executive doing? He's not doing that, is he? He's spending one and a half days working on this, and he's spending three and a half days working on other things that he thinks are important and are important for the client. Now, you can imagine how his performance review is going to go. If I'm sitting in his performance review, I'm looking at him and saying, okay, I brought you in. I told you this is your agenda. I told you how important it is, but you're only spending some of your time on it, and you're doing other things that I don't think you should be working on because I have other executives doing it. And it's okay if you fundamentally believe that these other things are critical to the company, but you haven't even convinced me of it. And you can imagine it from the, from the side of the uh, coaching client. He goes into his performance reviews and his entire strategy is to say, I'm not doing so well in what you asked me to do, but to make up for my lack of performance there, I'm doing all these other things, so promote me. Give me some business done, please. Look at how good I am. I neglected your most important questions and I'm doing what I think is important. So clearly you should trust me to run an entire profit-making part of your business. And I asked this client, you know, you're only spending one and a half days on this. Why? He said, well, you know, Michael, I've tried everything. I just don't know how to grow the bank services in this market. So I asked him, so you quit? He said, no, I'm not quitting. But of course you quit. When you look at your diary, and you have to make a decision, do I focus on what the CEO asked me to do, or I do something else, you are quitting and giving up. You can call it whatever you want, but basically you gave up. You gave up and you're trying to do other things. And then he comes back and says, no, this is not true. I tried everything. You know, I, I, just, I just don't know how to do it. Okay, that's different. You don't know how to do it. But let me give you a piece of advice. You've got to make a decision here. Right now you're a hybrid and you weren't meant to be a hybrid. Right now, you're spending one and a half days a week on what is a strategically critical imperative for the bank and the CEO. It's a once-in-a-lifetime change that's taking place. And if you're not there when it takes place, you're never going to be there. You're going to you're gonna be spending years and billions of dollars trying to buy your way into this market if you don't start building today. You are making this decision for the entire company. You have decided... You have decided, you may not know this, but you have decided that you're not going to do this and this company is going to have to suffer for a very long time to figure this out. Now, you've made that decision. Is, do you know you've made that decision? Are you aware of the magnitude of the decision you've made? And he says, no, I never thought about it that way. I said, this is what you have to do. You've got to stop doing everything else, firstly. And you've got to focus on this one thing. This is what you were paid to do. This is your job. In life, you have to... Not do what you want to do, but you have to look at who your client is. In this situation, the executive committee and the CEO is your client. Do you think you have raving clients? Do you think they are delighted by what you are 
doing? Do you think they, they go home and the CEO goes home and says, wow, honey, today I got an email from the head of strategy. This guy is amazing. He does the most amazing work. I cannot believe we hired him. I cannot believe we pay him so little bit of money. And he's just doing amazing things. I have my hands full dealing with regulators and the mortgage market. And this guy, I don't have to even ask him what he's doing. I just can see progress and wealth management in the most fundamentally important market in the world where we have to win if we're going to pay for everything else we want to do. Do you think he is, do you think the CEO or any executive committee member is doing that? No. And that's really the problem with his client. He wants to do what he wants to do, not what is needed to be done. It's another way of saying it. He doesn't know who his clients are and he's not serving his clients. And if you don't serve your clients, what point do you have in life? How are you ever going to be successful? Let's flip the switch here a little bit. Remember what I said at the beginning? Every executive coaching client I work with thinks the problem is the fact that the world doesn't work the way they want the world to work. And the reality is that the problem is almost always with the coaching client. And it's almost, I've never had to look at the strategy of an executive coaching client to fix it for them. Because it's not about the detail. It's about why you're doing this. What are you doing? How are you doing it? It's almost about focus. These are very smart people. I always ask these people, you know, I always ask coaching clients, right? You're smart. You went to Wharton, Harvard, and so on. And if you didn't go there, you went to some very good school. You, you've been in the industry for 20 years. You can read a book. You can buy a book on the internet that solves this problem. So why haven't you done it? And that's what I always ask clients. Why haven't you done it? You have a problem. You can buy a book. You can get help. So why haven't you done it? As you listen to Monday Morning ATM, I'm almost, I'm willing to bet some money on this. I'm not going to do it because I don't gamble, but I, if I was a gambling person, I'd do this. I'd bet money that every single executive and coaching client I'm going to have for the rest of my life is going to foot the same model. They're going to tell me that the problem is someone else, something else, some product, some team. They're going to give me a lot of data and I have to stop them and tell them, well, it's actually not the world. It's the fact that you are unwilling to accept the world for what it is. So just some fundamental issues of understanding why you are brought in, who your clients are, and why you're not creating stark, raving, mad, lunatic fans from them. Now, I remember that when I was manager, I remember the senior partners would actually send emails about me saying that, wow, they brought in this guy, Michael. They cannot believe the work he's doing. That's what you want to do. And, I, and you know, if you follow rebuilding a consulting practice and partnership memoirs, you know that I left the strategy practice and went to the operations practice for about a year and a half, which no one understood. And why did I do that? Because I wanted to help a partner and he was my biggest fan. And of course, my career went through the roof, not because I did what was good for me and stayed in the strategy practice and built out the risk capability, which is what many partners wanted me to do. But no, I gave that all up and I went to the operations practice and I figured out new ways of doing operations, which I'll talk about in subsequent episodes of Monday Morning 8 a.m. So the question now becomes, this what i want you to think about i want you to ask yourself this you're a smart person if you're listening to this podcast or you're reading this book or you're listening or you're reading the newsletter you're obviously a very smart person you have access to some of the best thinking in the world so why is it despite your intellect despite the fact you know that you have to adjust to the world the world doesn't adjust to you there's nothing wrong with the world that's the way the world is why is it you have not been successful despite everything you can do to be successful. What I would like you to do is, I would like you to write to support at Firms Consulting 
answering that question. Now, I'm not going to respond to it uh, because we're going to get too many emails. But what I want to do is I want to use it to seed other episodes of Monday Morning ATM and maybe talk to some of those issues you raise. So don't tell me what's, don't tell me why you're not successful. Don't tell me what's wrong with the industry and so on. Tell me why, despite your intellect, despite everything you know, despite the fact you can pick up any book on any subject in the world to solve any problem in the world, despite all of that, why is it that someone who is so amazing, who has come so far in the world, is not able to make that final big move to move markets? Send it to me. I want to read it, and I'm definitely going to touch on it in future episodes. If you're enjoying Monday morning 8 a.m., our advanced training can become that you know, major leverage, pivot, push transformational resource to help you, I think, change the trajectory of your career. You can become an annual member to unlock access to our most advanced, most powerful training programs on strategytraining.com and the strategy training apps, which is actually the largest strategy streaming training platform in the world. And we have partners like myself and other partners from McKinsey, BCG, and so on, ex-partners who teach executives how to do big moves. As always, I look forward to joining you next week, Monday morning, 8 a.m., as you try to make some big moves in your career. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.